Hey, it's Bill Bradley. Welcome to Five Things to Remember. Five things to remember to keep your better health. Five things to remember to keep your better health. Be cheerful, be helpful, don't hurt nobody else. Stop eating lousy food and spend your Hey, it's Bill Bradley, registered dietitian. I'm here in Studio 6 with the ever-fabulous tech guru, Jerry LeBlanc. Hey, Bill. What's happening? Well, I'm going to ask you this question. Uh, it's going to go right down to personal. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever gone into a negative thinking loop? Absolutely. You couldn't get out of your negative thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know... Yeah, exactly. It I've, happens. I've actually, uh, just in the last few weeks, uh, a few weeks ago, I, I got into this place of, of like a negative loop and like having negative thoughts coming up over and over again. And the, the problem when you're in those negative thoughts is it's very hard to remember how to get out of them. And it's just one of the many things that we're going to talk to talk about today with Brian Luke Seward who is a nationally and internationally renowned expert in the field of stress management, mind, body, spirit, healing, and health promotion. Cool. And uh, we're also going to talk about how to get out of being a victim and digital toxicity and the hero's journey. So we're, we're covering a lot of ground. Um, yeah. Just a quick thing about Brian Luke Seward. He's a college professor, a TEDx speaker, he has uh, taught meditation at the White House. He's also worked with Olympic athletes, Broadway actors, media personalities, and leaders of several multinational corporations. And he's spoken with Bill Bradley, registered dietitian. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> he's also the author of more than 14 books, including the bestsellers Stand Like Mountain, Flow Like Water, The Art of Calm, and Stressed is Dessert Spelled Backwards. That is brilliant. Yes. And we're going to we're going to um, ask him some questions about some of the other stuff that he's doing. But I just want to get to the interview because it's a really awesome uh, interview with him. I learned a lot. And uh, most importantly, I have gotten out of my negative thinking. I'm so glad like, to hear that. Yes. Feeling much better. All right. Let's go to the interview. All right. What would you uh, say to somebody who is like right in the middle of a major stress crisis and has ideas to get out, but is having a hard time doing that? Well, um, don't make any quick decisions. Um, and I think it takes time. I think that sometimes the, uh, the body has to catch up with the spirit. The spirit might decide they want to, wants to make a move, but the body has to catch up with it. And so, uh, to do that without catching up can cause more stress. You end up, you know, without perhaps uh, income or whatever the case might be. Um, a real big thing I teach in stress management is having options, not to see yourself painted into a corner. And I think a lot of people feel like that. And I'm also really big into the coping strategy called creator problem solving. And I think a lot of times we tend to uh, dwell on a problem without looking at the options, the availability for, for uh, solutions. And there's always a, a solution to a problem. There's actually several, and we have to find which one works the best for us. Um, I'm not advocating that people quit their marriages or, or quit their jobs and on, on mass. 
um, take a close look at you know why things aren't working and, and perhaps work to resolve those issues first. Um, do some some really uh, strong contemplative uh, examinations, what we call soul searching, and see what's going on there. But I think to live in a rut can be compromising to one's health and well-being and ultimately we see a strong connection between chronic stress and chronic disease and it seems like uh, you know most of the people that I talk to who are uh, feeling stressed out uh, a lot of times it has to do with with money and um, you know that's why they're not like considering moving on or um, you know they're they're freaked out that they're not gonna be able to keep living really if if they uh, give up the thing that's that's causing their stress. Yeah. Well, what do you say to someone like that? Well, um, I think a lot of Americans live outside their means. Um, as we were talking to earlier, I uh, I don't have a TV, and I think uh, the joke is that TV is an IV tube for marketers. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's very easy to get caught up in the whole uh, keeping up with the Joneses. You know, you see someone with something that's nice, you want to get that. You know, the whole technology thing. You know, with that, the increase the um, the uh, uh, availability of of technology through uh, uh, iPhones and smartphones and things like that. Um, it's easy to get caught up in that. And one of the big things I'm a real big advocate of is, is meditation. Meditation is a great way to become the observer and really what we call is domesticate the ego. So when there's um, a passion for trying to accumulate goods, um, it may be you know, the ego saying, I want more and more, which um, ultimately is a quick fix for uh, a, a spiritual quest that can never be answered with material possessions. And I, um, I saw that you worked with cancer patients. I have, or, yes. yes. Uh-huh. And um, I'm wondering what is uh, some of the lessons that you learned over the years? You know, not everyone has said this, but a number of them have said that um, at first, you know, obviously the diagnosis was terrible news. But when they can begin to work through the grieving of that, they realize that there is a gift involved with having a chronic disease and because it makes you stop and question everything. It makes you question, first of all, how do I get this? Secondly, um, how can I heal myself? How can I get better? But you begin to take inventory on what's really important to you and you begin to let go of those things which no longer serve you. So uh, not everyone gets to that point. There's still some people who are very angry. That's the whole grieving process. Um, but I would say, by and large, the number of people who I've worked with have said that that at the time they thought it was the worst thing that could ever have happened to them, and now they say it's the best thing that's ever happened to them because it helps them set their priorities straight. Do you think there's some way that uh, people could get that gift without getting cancer? Definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, we had a, a series of fires in Colorado a couple of summers ago, and some people lost their houses. We, then we had a flood. This, this um, torrential rain came down for about four or five days. We got 17 inches of rain in three days, and we normally get 19 in a year. So I can show you the devastation that happened. And I know several people who lost their houses or lost um, a large part of their possessions. And yes, the grieving process was very, very significant. Uh, but in the end, they came back and said, you know, All it was was stuff, and I just had too much stuff. Mm. So um, I I don't think you need to have uh, cancer to go through that realization. Um, Any kind of crisis can do that, and uh, we're definitely in in a period where we have a lot of crises going on. Um, 
both you know globally and individually. Um, but I think all of this really is just a, a moment to stop and, and and really kind of question you know how we're living our lives. And by and large, you know, we can get by a lot less. Who are some of the people in in your life that uh, that you look up to or have changed your life? Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> yeah, I, have I have a long list hours. of heroes. Yeah, I got a long list of heroes. Um, there's some people who I've never met who are very much inspirational to me, and I have to say that uh, here I am. So it seems like I'm bashing technology. Um, I, I see a lot of really cool things on on Facebook of videos of very inspiring people. Uh, for example, there was a, a gal who um, I think she was born without legs, and her parents gave her up for adoption, thinking they didn't want her. And it turns out that she had this real interest in gymnastics. And so her parents, her adopted parents said, there's nothing that you can't do. Never say never. And so this little girl growing up, grew up doing gymnastics. And then she had a, a role model herself, which was some Olympic uh, athlete. And it turns out that in pursuing the history of this Olympic athlete, she finds out that she's her sister. Mm-hmm. That's why they have an interest in gymnastics, uh, a joint interest. And to see what she's done, she's won all kinds of awards and things. I'm thinking like, you know, God, I can recall running the Boston Marathon and complaining about how much my legs hurt. And I'm thinking like, here's a girl who has no legs, and she's not complaining. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right, but Nian Cheng? Nian Cheng, yes. Uh, She just passed away. We just lost her a couple years ago. She wrote this great book. In fact, another hero of mine for sure, definitely a hero of mine. Um, wrote this book called Life and Death in Shanghai. And I was in Burlington, Vermont, and a friend of mine was reading that. And I said, oh, that's a great title for a book. And she goes, you've got to read this book. And little did I know that when I then moved to D.C., that's where she was living. And I heard her speak at an event, and I thought to myself, this is the epitome of the triumph of the human spirit. So I contacted her to see if she might be a guest speaker in my stress management class. And she said to me, um, I don't drive a lot. If you come pick me up, I'll be there. So immediately, you know, we made plans for me to go pick her up at her condo, which wasn't very far from where I was working. And, uh, and she walked in the classroom, and she's so elegant, so graceful. Her story is this. She was um, uh, educated in China, but then went to college in London. She married her childhood sweetheart, who was then appointed by Chiang Kai-shek to be the ambassador to uh, Australia. So they packed up and went to Australia. But then when Mao Zedong took over, he called all the ambassadors back and fired them all because they weren't communist. And so this guy um, took a job as the uh, cultural attache, I think, of Shell Oil Corporation. But then he died. He died of cancer very quickly. So Nian Ching was offered his position because she spoke English too. And shortly after she took this position, the Red Guards appeared at her front doorstep and said, you're under house arrest. And she said, what's my crime? And she said, they said to her, uh, well, you are a spy for the British. You speak English. So she was put under house arrest for a couple of weeks. And then they dragged her by her hair down to the number one detention house in Shanghai, where for six and a half years, and she was 54 years old, was imprisoned for six and a half years in a room no bigger than the size of a walk-in closet. She was cut off from all her family. She had a daughter who um, she never saw again because once she got out, and it, she got out because when Nixon went to China, they released a few people as a token for human rights. And she was one of them. And when she went out, she found out her daughter had been murdered by the same people who had arrested her. So she made it uh, at first to, I think it was to Taiwan, then to um, 
uh, to Hong Kong, then she went to England, then Canada, then ended up in D.C. where her book was a bestseller. And she came to my class and she told my class what it was like to live without freedom for six and a half years. And it was a heart-wrenching story. I mean, t- my students were crying. Uh, but she also made us laugh. She had a couple of funny stories. Um, she said, you know, in China, there's no word for stress. They call it opportunity. And um, we became friends. And I would go to D.C. I, at that point there, I, I left D.C. to go back to Colorado. And but I would go to D.C. about once a year. And we'd, we'd have lunch, take her out for lunch. And she'd always say to me, um, can I pick the restaurant? And I said, yeah, sure. Where do you want to go? And she'd always pick a Chinese restaurant in Georgetown. And then she'd say to me, can I order the food off the menu? I'm like, yeah, sure. You go ahead and do what you want to do. And she'd always get something that was never on the menu. Uh, just a brilliant, brilliant and beautiful soul. And... Uh, and uh, one day she said to me, I think the reason why I live so long is I do Tai Chi. And I said, I think there's a few more things going on than that. And then, uh, then one day I, would, I went by to pick her up and we drove by the cemetery. And she said, um, she goes, you know, you can come visit me whenever you want. And I said, well, whenever I get to D.C., I'll, I'll give you a call. And she goes, no, she goes, I just bought a cemetery plot. You can visit me anytime. <laughs> <laughs> great, great sense of humor. She lived to be about 93. Uh, remarkable, remarkable woman. And um, her book, Life and Death in Shanghai, to me is the female version of Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor, Viktor Frankl was uh, a psychiatrist who got hauled off to Auschwitz, and he lost his manuscript on the way, which was his idea of logotherapy, that if we have a purpose in life, we can withstand any stress, and and I believe that to be true. It's fascinating to me that uh, a few days ago, um, I don't know if you know, Jimmy Fallon had an accident and almost, uh, pulled his finger off. Yeah, I heard about and, that. Um, but he, uh, pulled out that book. Did he really? Search, search for meaning and, uh, and recommended it. So I'm pretty sure it's going to be on the bestseller list. And that's, <laughs> that's, uh, it is one of my favorite books too. I mean, it's a hard book to read, but it's a really amazing story. Yeah. What I often tell people is that if you're having a bad day, read this book. It'll make any day seem like a bed of roses compared to what that guy went through. Yeah. I I was reading in your book um, when you're talking about victims or victors. And uh, you have a funny story in there about a victim. Do you remember that about the, uh, the gas station? Yeah. You want to hear it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm in D.C. and I decided to get my oil changed in the car. I figured it was time to get the oil changed. So uh, I go to this, this place and... Uh, a quick stop and I park my car, they take it and I go in the waiting room and this guy is in the waiting room too. And he's reading this newspaper and I can't see him. He's got the paper up over his face. And as I sit down, the paper lowers and he looks at me and he says, so what do you do for a living? My first thought was like, what is this? A Spanish inquisition? And I said, well, I'm a college professor. And uh, he says, Oh, and he puts the hair back up. I thought, this is no way to end a conversation. I mean, how can you just ask one question and have it be over with? So I said, excuse me. I said, um, I said, how about you? I said, what do you do for a living? And he puts the paper back down, makes direct eye contact with me, and he says, I'm a victim, and puts the paper back up. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. And I said, a victim of what, the economy? And he puts the paper back down, looks me dead in the eye, and says, of life, victim of life, and puts the paper back up. And I thought, wow, this guy is really claiming that label all to himself. And um, one of my favorite expressions goes like this. Once a victim, twice a volunteer. Mm-hmm. He chose to be a victim. Yeah. It's very easy to see a victim when you when you see one. Um, 
And sometimes I want to say something to them. I want to like help them somehow, but I don't really think I, I can't think of anything that I could say. Do you have anything that you say to somebody who's an obvious victim? Uh, well, <laughs> when I when I teach college students, if I start hearing some uh, what I call the BMW syndrome, stands for bitch mona wine, that to me is victimization, and I'll, I'll often call them on that. I'll say, it "Sounds like you're grieving. Is there something you want to talk about?" Um, but if I see someone on the street, I, you know, it's not my place to say something to them. I just send them love and hope that they can come to a place of peace um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I wish them well. And uh, if they're asking for money, I might pull out my wallet and give them a dollar or so. But I, uh, it's not for me to judge what someone's been through. There's a lot of people been through a lot worse situations than I've ever been through. And um, uh, the best we can do is just wish them well. I mean, if they want to ask for help, I'll be glad to do it. But... Um, and it's an old adage, but it's true. You know, you can't uh, make a horse drink water if they don't want to. What did you mean by uh, sounds like they're grieving or sounds like you're grieving? What do you mean by that? Well, a lot of people, when people are, are um, in the victim mode or victim consciousness, they're usually complaining about something. I mean, it could be their health. It could be their situation, their loss of job or something. But they're they're grieving the death of an expectation that things should have gone a different way. And grieving's healthy. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big advocate of grieving, but pr- uh, prolonged grieving is not healthy. So we often teach people in stress management that it's okay to grieve, but but to do it and then be done with it and not uh, mm. let it linger because ultimately it becomes a black cloud over your head. And so, um, so uh, in terms of, of grieving, there is a time limit. Or once again, you hear the term that I'll use, healthy boundary, to put a healthy boundary on the grieving process and, and then to let it go. And some people find that uh, it's it gives them a sense of validation to continue to bemoan a situation, and they wrap their identity up in the the situation of stress, and don't let go. And I think we all know people like that. Uh, and um, again, grieving's okay, but in in small amounts. And another thing that I hear a lot, uh, and I've been in this you know place before too, where you. You're just having uh, negative emotions coming up and negative thoughts. Uh, and, and, you know, people are always will say, uh, how, how do I get out of this? How, do you have any uh, answer to that? How to get out of uh, negative thought loops? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's very important to get out of that. Um, it's very easy to go in a downward spiral. Um, the textbook answer to that is to begin to take stock of what you're grateful for. Uh, one of my colleagues, his name is Alan Shamir. He used to be an advertising executive for, uh, for some company, I think in New York City. But he's the guy who came up with the expression, 7-Up, the Uncola. But he realized that marketing was actually um, prying on people's insecurities. And he said, I'm not going to be part of this anymore. So he began to do marketing to help boost people's self-esteem, to try and give a sense of confidence and things. And so one of his exercises called A Thousand Things Went Right Today to put the focus on what went right as opposed to what went wrong. And so some of my students look at me because I give them a list. I'll say, just give me 10 things that went right, not, you know, not a thousand. We'll just we'll make it simple. And some of the people in corporate America will look at me like nothing went right today. And I'll say, can you walk? They'll say, yeah. And I'll say, you know, I have two friends of mine who are quadriplegics. They can't walk. Put that down. And they look at me like, oh, okay. And I'll say, can you breathe? And they'll say, yeah. And I'll say, I know three people who are on ventilators. They can't breathe. 
put that down. Start with the basics. So to answer your question, I think um, and it sounds kind of like a cliche or Pollyanna, but I don't mean it to be. But um, one of the best things we can recommend people do is is to take inventory of those things you are grateful for, things you take for granted, and and then realize that not everything is bad. There is always something good that we can focus on. And I often say that uh, Rosa Parks did not take that seat one day because she saw herself as a victim. She actually was very empowered to take that position and say, I'm not taking this anymore. Um, anyone who's ever done anything that's of significance, and of course the, the heroes make the headlines, but there's countless heroes that you'll never hear about. Uh, those people who make a step in the, the direction of positivity are the ones who are saying, it's time to move out of this rut and get on with my life. And that's so very, very important to do. And yeah, it's work. It's a lot of work. I mean, um, you know, I, I uh, when I was in, in a junior high, I guess we call it middle school now, I saw myself as a victim. You know, how come I got two parents who uh, are totally abusive with alcohol? And then I realized that I don't want to play the role of a victim anymore. That, it, that was to get me nowhere. And, and it might end up making me be like them, which was the last thing I wanted to do. So I made a conscious choice to uh, to look at the positive side. And and I thought I had it really bad, and, and I, I did. But then I found when I went to college, I met a lot of people who had it a lot worse. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's work to find the positive aspects of life. But it's not a denial of reality. Uh, we talk about people like Pollyanna who uh, look through rose-colored glasses. And, and people hear that name now, and they think that she was delusional. Except that if you take a look at the, the autobiography of Anne Frank, she's got a quote in there that says, Even though the world is a sad, negative place, I look to see the positive in people. And that, to me, is brilliant. I'm uh, thinking about the um, kind of your spiritual path, you know, what you've what you've done over the years, because uh, it sounds like you've you've gone pretty deep. And uh, wondering if you can just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I um. You know, I don't often mention this because in my book, Stay Like Mountain, Fall Like Water, um, it's all about stress and spirituality. And uh, I don't give my background in there, what I was raised, because I want people to, to see it through their own eyes, not through mine. Uh, but I was raised Catholic. And uh, as you begin to explore certain things, I, I you know had all kinds of questions about things. But I had all kinds of mystical experiences, too. I had um, a lot of dreams that were premonitions. I had some... Um, a lot of great synchronicities. I had some uh, some incredible experiences that could not be explained rationally. And when I tried to find out why I was having these things, it kind of opened up a few doors uh, and led to some books too, like some books like The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck, of course the work by Carl Jung, uh, the work by Joseph Campbell, um, a lot of, of great luminaries and, and uh, spiritual teachers who would talk about the fact that once you lift the veil, you can see beyond the normal world we live in. And and so that opened up a lot of doors for me. And um, I, uh, I don't say that I'm religious. I say that I'm very spiritual. Um, I think that, uh, to, to quote Carl Jung, he was once asked if he believed in God. And and he said, no. And he takes this long, pregnant pause. And he says, I know. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, someone often said to me, or has been said to me, that, that religion is, is a faith, but spirituality is a knowledge. 
that you know. And um, uh, I'd say that's that's where things have, have uh, progressed to. I'm still um, a, a neophyte when it comes to trying to make sense of the world. Um, but I like the template from M. Scott Peck who talks about, and I don't think it's his, he actually gives her it to somebody else, but he kind of modified it, that in terms of spiritual development, there's one stage he calls the Mr. Communal, and that's somebody who is looking for answers to life and every time they get one answer it begins to expand the perimeter of the puzzle so just when you think you have the answers to life the questions get much more deeper and profound so he calls it mystic communal because these people like a mystery and sure enough um, I, I, th- I love a mystery too uh, but communal means that you don't do it alone that you you do it in the terms of, of uh, friends and colleagues and family who are also trying to search because greed isn't a spiritual value. Once you get a nugget of wisdom, divine or otherwise, it's incumbent upon the hero and the hero's journey to share that with the people of the community. Um, what has been your hero's journey? Wow. Um, I would say probably the, okay, the hero's journey, let me just give a template so people understand this. Um, by the way, Bill Moyers did a PBS special with Joseph Campbell back, I think, like 87 or so. And if you were to watch that today, you'd never know it was filmed like 25, 30 years ago because the, the, the knowledge, the wisdom in this this idea of the hero's journey is is ageless. It goes back thousands of years, so all the stories are contemporary. Um, but the, the template for the hero's journey is, in simple terms, is three stages. There's the departure, the initiation, and the return home. So the departure is going from the known to the unknown. Initiation is once you're in the unknown, you got to do some task. And then uh, once you complete the task, you got to come back home and celebrate victory. So um, all of the great movies and stories and fairy tales and fables have this template. And Joseph Campbell found this all throughout the world. Uh, but let's just pick The Wizard of Oz, for example. You know, Dorothy gets hit in the head and she departs. She's looking to get out of Kansas and boy, does she get a ride out of Kansas. And then her initiation is she has to get the witch's broomstick. And then, of course, she returns back home. And, you know, Frodo did it in The, the Lord of the Rings. Um, Ariel did it in The Little Mermaid. I mean, you take a look at this template and it's, it's, it's pretty magical. Uh, and which, by the way, we were talking about the Game of Thrones earlier. The guy who wrote the, the series or the series of books called the Game of Thrones said he hated the template of the hero's journey. And he was going to he was going to just defy that concept. And so that's why if you do watch Game of Thrones, listeners, um, some of your characters get killed off early on. It's because he was trying to basically give the finger to Joseph Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> but in my own hero's journey, I would say... Um, the departure was um, uh, departure and initiation was dealing with two abusive alcoholic parents, mm-hmm. and uh, and and it's been a good time ever since. Um, so I feel uh, my first eighteen years were pretty much like hell, but after that, I'm doing pretty good. Great. Uh, and can you talk about the muscles of the soul? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so okay. So, I have a master's degree in exercise physiology. After I got my my bachelor's from the University of Maine in journalism, I, I double majored and uh, took kinesiology. Back then, they called it phys ed as a, a double major, and because um, uh, I love sports. And when you talk about sports and talk about conditioning, um, obviously you talk about muscles. And so, when it came time to talk about the psychology of stress and and the spirituality part of that. 
Um, it's very, very abstract. It's very intangible. And I thought to make it tangible, let me give it a metaphor that everyone can relate to. And so, um, when I'm on plane rides, traveling from place to place or in the post office, I see, no matter where I go, I seem to have the sign on my forehead that says, tell me your life story. And the worse it is, the more I want to hear it. And again, the stories fall in two categories, victims and victors. And I gravitate toward the victors. When I ask these people after hearing the story, how'd you get through this? I mean, incredible stories that just, I mean, they're, they're heart wrenching. Like Nian Ching is, is one example. Uh, I said, how'd you get through this? And they all have one way they got through, but it's different for each person. So like Nian Ching said, I got through my ordeal in prison because of patience. And I'm thinking, oh my God, that's a lot of patience, six and a half years. And this, this, um, this one kid named Peter who had bone cancer, uh, I said, how'd you get through this? And he said, he goes, I just believe in the good in people and, 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 and the best side of life. And he was talking about optimism. Um, I talked to a woman who lost her son to a drunk driver. And I said, how'd you get through this? And she said, I had to forgive. And so I hear these, these attributes, which, you know, we would call coping techniques, but they're a spiritually based coping technique. And so I decided to call them, give them a category called, I call the muscles of a soul. And what I tell people is that, that we all have these, these muscles, these, these uh, abilities to cope with stress. And if we don't use them, they'll never fade away, but they will atrophy if we don't use them. And so, um, that's how I came up with that concept called the muscles of a soul. And, uh, and it turns out that, um, uh, I think it's a very apt one and, and, uh, we're in a time right now in the history of humanity where we all need to, to get off our, our butts and start exercising. Yeah, and the ones that you have in the book are faith, humor, optimism, patience, compassion, and love. Yeah, yeah. that's a very short list. Yeah, um, very powerful words. Though. Yeah. By the way, one of my students at the American University, um, I want to give a shout out to him because he lives in the Boston area. His name is Andrew Adams, was uh, not only a student of mine, probably one of my best teachers. And he, uh, as a quadriplegic, um, used humor to cope with his stress and uh, taught me that humor truly was more than just feeling good. It was actually uh, a road to salvation. And, uh, and I've been using humor a lot myself, but, I mean, he is just the epitome of, of uh, here on the hero's journey. And that was his muscle of the soul. I mean, mm-hmm. all of them end up using lots of different muscles, but they always highlight one. And for him, it was definitely humor. Is there anything that I haven't covered you want to talk about you know i thought about three or four things as we were talking i'm like oh yeah come back to this come back to this come back to this <laughs> no i can't think of any of them <laughs> oh i know let's talk about digital toxicity what's uh, it digital toxicity uh, one of the biggest problems i see right now in terms of stress in america and although we can go even further than that is the problem of digital toxicity uh, again, I love technology. I think technology is great, but I don't see a lot of healthy boundaries around it. And I see a lot of people who now are in the category of what they call as, uh, have, uh, uh, addiction to their screens or screen addictions. And, and there's a lot of problems with this, everything from poor communication skills. We see kids who don't know how to look um, people in the eyes anymore because they're looking, they would rather text than look someone in the face and talk to them or talk on the phone. Um, the study of psychology is going to have a field day with digital stuff, let me tell you, uh, because we're seeing the worst come out in all kinds of ways. Um, 
it's having an effect on relationships, having an effect on marriages. Uh, I have a friend back in Colorado who says that um, he calls his wife's cell phone uh, the third spouse because she mm-hmm. spends more time on that than he, it, she does with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, some real problems in terms of this, but I'm also seeing a real problem with um, sleep patterns. I was asked to do a talk on insomnia for a company out in Colorado, and you know I sleep great at night, so I thought I better do some homework on this and see what's going on. And I was astonished and, and very disappointed to learn that over half of Americans claim not to get a good night's sleep on a regular basis. That's huge, and and so and that was before the influx of technology, and so now we're seeing what impact technology has on on the pineal gland and. Um, what happens is people who now take technology into their bedroom and look at their screen devices after dark are now sending a message from, of light to their pineal gland, the gland that makes melatonin, the sleep hormone, to shut off. And so now we're seeing basically the effect of light from the screen devices impacting the ability of the body's circadian rhythms to fall asleep naturally. And this is huge. This is a huge problem because we now know that insomnia is related to all kinds of, of health problems, everything from cancer to diabetes to, um, to uh, high blood pressure to all kinds of chronic diseases. And, and so um, this is what the biggest problem I see in terms of, of health today is, is the addiction to technology. And again, I want to say technology is not bad. It's how we use it. That is supposed to serve us, but a lot of people have become slaves to it. And, and I also found out, there was, I saw this documentary uh, on the internet, I might add. Uh, I think it's called Resonant Frequency. And what they said was that a lot of research is being done on this, by the way, but not in this country. Or if it is, it's not being shared. But uh, over in Europe, a lot of research is being done. And what they found is that the frequency of the Wi-Fi router seems to negate the ability of the brain's, um, of the pineal gland's ability to make uh, melatonin. And so they are saying that uh, if you have a Wi-Fi router in your house, turn it off when you go to bed, probably even before you go to bed, because without the use of melatonin, we've got some real concerns here. And so, uh, so one of my health habits now is, you know, I, when I lock up the house, close the windows, all that kind of stuff, uh, turn off the Wi-Fi router. And, uh, and I think that's something that's good advice for all of us. Because you don't need to have your screen devices on when you're sleeping. And you don't need to have that vibration, uh, which is what they call dirty electricity, uh, running through the house affecting your your health. So I have to take out the Wi-Fi router from my bedroom Uh and stop playing words with friends before I go to sleep. That's right, yeah. yeah. (laughs) By the way, um, I think it's the American Institute on Sleep said that the biggest problem they see now, they do an annual... uh, uh, study and, and, and a news announcement and they say that the biggest thing they've seen is is the invasion of technology in the bedroom and the bedroom is supposed to have one thing in it a bed and you do one thing sleep okay maybe two things maybe two things <laughs> <laughs> but it's not playing word with friends that's for sure no, no. <laughs> well uh, I want to say thank you very much for uh, being on our podcast and uh, I just want to say that you know I, I read most of your books stand like mountain flow like water and it was an amazing book but I wanted to ask you if there's any other uh, things that you're doing and coming up or things that you're excited about that you've done recently that you'd want to share yeah thanks um I made a documentary movie called earth songs mountains water the healing power of nature 
And I made that for people who had cancer because a lot of people when they were in the hospital getting chemo, they don't want them watching television. So uh, I made this as a means for cancer patients to relax. And it turns out that um, someone out in LA got a hold of it and and uh, gave it to the military. And so a lot of people in the military uh, with PTSD and traumatic brain injury were, were using this as a means to relax, which is great. And then, I mean, this thing took off farther than I could ever imagine when I made it. Made it. Somebody from California, uh, a film producer, or film, I'm sorry, a film agent got their hands on it and said, we wanna get this on PBS. And so all across the country for about two years, it was showing on PBS. And, and that just really warmed my heart. And when I got emails from people who had cancer who said, I just saw your movie on television. It was the most relaxing thing I've done in the past couple of days. I thought, wow, this is really working. And, um, and I'm very want to put a thanks out to uh, actor Michael York, who some of your listeners may recognize. He was in Cabaret and Logan's Run, uh, Three Musketeers, and most recently in some of the Austin Powers movies. He did the narration for it. <laughs> and he said, I'm not going to charge you for this because I believe in the cause. And uh, just a great, great guy. We've become pretty good friends, actually. How do uh, how do people get a hold of that? Uh, they can. <laughs> I hate to say this. They can go to my website, brianlukesever.net, and I, I have got a uh, plenty of copies. I'd be glad to autograph them. Uh, they can also get it. I think it's on Amazon and and uh, the, the stores like um, the big box stores like uh, Costco and stuff like that. Um, I think you can also watch on on Hulu too. It's also on Hulu now. Um, also, I was asked by Wilcoa, the Wellness Councils of America, to do a book on insomnia, digital toxicity, and mindfulness. And so that book comes out uh, in a couple of months in the fall of 2015. And uh, they basically give it away. It's like, you know, $3 for this this book. And it's not very long and very thick. But it has a couple of um, worksheets in there to kind of uh, increase awareness about behaviors and stuff. And I think that that's going to do really well because it is such a problem in corporate America, actually in America, period. Great. Well, thank you very much. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. All right. That was our interview with Brian Luke Seward. And these are the five things to remember that I thought were the five things to remember from that interview. There were some good things. What do you got? Number one. Instead of focusing on what went wrong today, focus on what went right today. Yeah, totally. always something positive to look at. It doesn't have to be a thousand things. It could be just ten things. Ten things. Yeah. Uh, Number two, turn off your router at night. I'm totally doing that. I actually, right after the interview, I went home and I saw that I have two routers in my house and one of them was right next to our bed. Yeah. And I realized all I have to do is I can click that off. I never have to turn it on again. It was just the extra router. That is so freaky that it affects your pineal gland. Yeah. 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 Number three is uh, strengthening the muscles of your soul to strengthen them as you know, every day. And uh, do you remember what some of those were? Those were deep. Yeah. Like faith and patience and love and yeah. All the good uh, emotions of the soul. Right. Number four is that a crisis can be a gift. Yeah, totally. Doesn't have to be cancer either. Right. <laughs> it, it could just be, be a flat tire. Yeah. Exactly. It's how you look at it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And number 5 is putting a time limit on grief. That was interesting to me. Yeah. Um, but it makes a lot of sense. You you know, you hang on to stuff and it festers and you if you uh you know keep staying in uh, in grief, you become a victim. 
right. after a certain period of time. That's right. why you should keep a time limit on it. Uh, I just wanted to thank Brian Luke Seward once again, and uh, I highly recommend his uh, book in DVD, Earth Songs. He mm. traveled all around the world and made these just incredible photographs and videos. And uh, That's the one that they're using like in the military for PTSD yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's really amazing, and you can get it, it at his site. Uh, BrianLukeSeward.com and uh, as we go out uh, our song today Five Things to Remember was by our video intern uh, this summer Julia Alpern who is also a great musician and uh, she's she's going to uh, just do a little promotion at the end here yeah and don't forget for more information on how to handle stress and you know lead the right lifestyle we got lots of stuff on MediterraneanLiving.com See ya. I'm Julia Alpern. If you want to hear more of my music, find me on Facebook and YouTube at Julia Alpern Music to stay updated on all my latest songs, videos, and performances.